Let me start with these words. Today is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. And everyone said? Amen. Amen, amen. So, hey, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Peace. And I actually have up here, up here with me Pastor John Delger. Pastor John is our executive pastor. And this morning, we're going to do something a little unique. We're going to team teach today's message. And as we've been going through this sermon series, Biblical Answers to Big World Questions, as this sermon series has kind of unfolded, it's, it's been received in, in a very unique way. And the ways that people have been engaging this series has been very, I'd say, very unique uh, and also very challenging. And as we looked at this coming week, today, today's message, we had a different message plan that we were going we to team teach. But as this sermon series unfolded, we really felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, uh, that's a fine message. At some point, we'll get to that. But there's a different message that's important for this church, for this time, in this season. Because we've been, we were reflecting on, on some of the topics that we are addressing through this series. And we came to realize that a lot of the topics that we are addressing, yes, they're, they're big world questions, that they are problems, but they're symptoms of problems in a lot of ways. And we wanted to address a root problem that we think is happening in our society and in our world. And so we really felt today like the Spirit was telling us to attack this message instead. Here's our biblical answer today to our big world question for today. What happened to men? What happened to men in our world? Where are the men? We're going to talk about why this term, the crisis of masculinity, is a thing in our day and age. And we're going to look at how the Bible has been giving us a consistent answer for what a man is supposed to be for thousands of years, but the world has lost its way and forgotten what a man should be. So we're going to look at that today. So would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5. Now, as you are turning there, and that's, uh, that's on page 1263 if you want to use the Bibles that we've provided. As you turn in there, I just want to say a quick hello to those who are joining us online, those who are in our chapel, and those who are downstairs in our new family venue. So happy that you are with us. But as you're turning there, you're going to notice that this passage is specifically talking about how to discern who should be an elder in the church. Here's the context real quick. First Timothy was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor at a church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing to this young pastor who he's mentoring and saying, here's how you can, dis here's how you can discern who should be an elder in your church. And so while this passage is specifically addressing who should be an elder, you need to understand that only godly men should be elders. And so Paul is helping Timothy to understand what is a godly man, who is a godly man. That's the premise that we're working with. And so as we look today, we're going to see this drawn out and what it means for us here today in 21st century America. And I'm going to invite up Pastor John to come and read God's word for us this morning. Amen. And ladies in the house, hopefully you know as well, there's going to be lots of great stuff for you, even though we're talking about man and what is a man. Hopefully, if you're a single woman in the house this morning thinking about marriage coming one day, hopefully there's a chance for you to think about what kind of man you should be looking for to marry. If you're a married woman, hopefully this is a great chance for you to look at how can I support, encourage, and pray for my husband. And if you're a mom who's trying to raise sons, hopefully there's a great chance for you to think about how should I be raising my sons? What should I be raising them up to be? So if you get your Bible, would you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3? I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Here we go. This is God's word. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would open up our hearts to receive your word. God, I pray that you would transform our lives. God, I pray for all the men who would hear this word. God, I pray that you would set a calling, set a vision for what a biblical man is. God, I pray that you would call us to more. God, I pray that you would give us your spirit, that we would be able to live up to your calling for us. And God, I pray for us, these two broken men on the stage, that you would fill us with your spirit to get to present what your word has to say about being a man. Thank you, Father. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So church, what we want to do for a moment is, Pastor John and myself, we just want to have a, a conversation about the, the root of this issue, some of the things that lead us to talk about the crisis of men. And you're going to hear that term. Maybe you've already heard it out and about, um, but I think it's a term you're going to continue to hear in our society. So, so Pastor John, what are, what are some of the signs around us that would lead us to say there's a crisis of, of masculinity or that men are in crisis? Yeah. Yeah. One of the major signs is uh, the number and the diversity of people talking about and using that phrase, a crisis of men. Uh, when people uh, all across uh, different platforms and different parts, think of uh, guys like Bill Maher and Jordan Peterson, guys that are Christians, guys that are not Christians, people all over the place are, are declaring that there is a crisis of men. And when you have, when you have that kind of diversity in number, that's, that's something we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, and these guys, when they talk, they also share uh, things like statistics that they're, that they're seeing that lead them to this kind of conclusion. Some of the, some of the stats that we reviewed and heard this week are these. In education, we, we hear that there's an enormous drop in men graduating from college. Now, not everybody has to go to college. That's okay. And it's great that there's so many women graduated from college. But the stat is that twice as many women graduate from college than men. Now, again, there's some great things in that. But what's going on? What, why has that changed so drastically for men over the last few years? Violent crime. 90% of homicides are committed by men. And 77% of homicides uh, are men are the victims of those. Men are three and a half times more likely than women to commit suicide. In relationships, the number of men under 30 who are in a romantic relationship is dropping. That's a concerning statistic for us. As we, as we think about men under 30 being kind of in that age when normally you're, you're dating, you're uh, looking for a wife, you're looking to start a family, you're in that time of life, and re relationships are going down. These are all things that kind of trend in a direction that makes us think maybe something unhealthy is going on. Yeah, they'll also, people will talk, also talk about how men make up the, the largest number of people in what they call uh, stigmatized social conditions, meaning 90% of the men, 90% uh, of the people who are in prison are, are men. Men are more likely to be homeless and stay homeless for longer periods of time. Men are more likely than women. Um, men make up far more uh, number of people than women who are institutionalized for mental health problems. Um, and this just leads us to say, what's happening to men? Where are men? What's, why aren't they showing up at work or at home or in, his, in our society? Where are they going? 
Yeah, and one of the buzzwords that we hear connected to this conversation is that phrase, uh, toxic masculinity. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Uh, Pastor Ryan, do you mind talking to us about what is toxic masculinity? What are people referring to when they use that word? Yeah, so toxic masculinity is a term that really first came around in like in the 1980s, but no one really talked about it until as of late, like with the Me Too movement and uh, Hollywood bringing light to, to how some men in positions of power, have abused that authority to, subject, um, to objectify and abuse women. But this term toxic masculinity, like, like most buzzwords and buzz phrases in our society, people don't have a common consensus on actually how to define it. We know that we don't like it, but we don't always know exactly what it is. But generally speaking, for sake of conversation, uh, people will talk about an imbalance of traditional male traits that leads to negative personas in men. Meaning, Toxic masculinity is, is often a product of when we tell men or tell boys to, to suppress their emotions, to stuff their emotions away. And what happens is that boys and men are never learned to actually deal with their emotions. They never learn to control their emotions, and therefore they have a very low emotional IQ out in public. They don't know how to act, and so they, they, they lean into stereotypical, the, the amplified stereotypical traits. Mm. Um, this, one of them, them, them being the, uh, this whole like, tough guy appearance. That tough guy is, is a behavior and appearance that, that really shows that you're a man, which is wrong. And usually that manifests itself in things like power is demonstrated not through wisdom and moral integrity, but, but, but power is thrown, shown through violence. And vulnerability is seen as weakness, being, being open about yourself. And so I think what the, one of the, the biggest things about this is that we have, as a culture, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. While we've rightfully tried to address toxic masculinity and, and, and get rid of that in our society, we've thrown out all masculinity. And so the message that we're communicating to our men and boys is that anything that smells of masculinity is now suspect or going to be a negative contribution to our society. Mm. And we say the Bible really affirms masculinity. We want to talk about what that means in a healthy, in a godly way. And so, Pastor John, as we talk about this, what are, what are some of the potential causes of this crisis that you see in men? Yeah, yeah, I think what you said there about the, the baby with the bathwater is, is so key. One of the potential causes of this crisis, I think, is actually the reaction that you're, that you're talking about, a reaction to this idea of toxic masculinity. Is there some criticisms that are absolutely spot on and right and we should learn from? Yes, there are some criticisms that are helpful and right. There are some that are not so much. But the idea that we're just going to throw out everything we've ever thought about what a man is, um, that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right, and so one of the causes, I think, of the crisis is a reaction to this phrasing of toxic masculinity. So if you're a young man growing up today, you're being told that uh, the generation before you, that your dad or your grandpa or whoever, that they, they did manhood wrong, right, that they were, they were too aggressive or stoic or, or stubborn or, or whatever phrase you hear. And so as a young man, you're thinking, well, then what am I supposed to be? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm supposed to look to dad or grandpa for my vision of what to be as a man, but the world is saying that that was bad, that was wrong. And so now I'm saying, well, what, what am I supposed to be? Right, and now we have this tendency to sort of swing as a, a, like a pendulum, right? If one generation uh, was too aggressive, now I'm gonna swing to the other side and be too passive, yeah. or I'm gonna swing back and be the other way. Um, so I think that's one of the causes to the yeah. crisis that we're in. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. We are a pendulum people. We're just constantly swinging back and forth to the extreme, never finding the middle. But the, and it's not even about the middle. For us, it's about God's word and God's truth, which we're going to talk about yeah. today. And so when we talk about some of the dangers of this and why we are addressing this today, uh, 
I'm going to lead out and say that a society that does not have strong men will not be a strong society. Yeah. Um, it's, going to, it's going to lead to havoc. And I think you've seen that in a lot of ways with our society right now. We are so confused. We're so divisive. And it's because men are MIA. And men who try to step up are being told to shut up because they're mansplaining mm. or it's not their time anymore. And I'm going to tell you right now that I, we cannot have a strong society if we don't have strong men. Mm. We cannot have a strong future if we don't have strong men. We cannot have strong families if we don't have strong men. And we will never have a healthy, strong church if we don't have strong men. Uh, Ryan McDermott is a PhD who worked, works for the University of South, Ala South Alabama. And he worked on the APA guidelines about working with men. And he said this, he said, if we, if we can change men, we can change the world. Mm. Even the secular world understands that men have a ma massive sway in the direction of a culture and a society. And so for us, we want to see that harness for God's glory in God's design because it can result in beautiful things. Yeah. So today, church, we're going to talk about men in life and men at home. That's what our passage really talks about today. So Pastor John, would you tell us, teach us about men in life from our passage? It would be my pleasure. If you got your Bible, would you open with me and look at those first couple of verses that we read just a moment ago, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the first three verses here to start. Somebody stole my other page. <laughs> Ryan, did you steal it? Hopefully not. You did. It was in his binder. Look at that. I trusted you. I was seeing how you'd handle under stress. You. Show us what a man's like under stress. <laughs> well, there you saw it. Let's turn to the Bible, see what God has to say. All right, starting in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and he goes on, and we're going to get back to some of the rest of that in just a moment. So what I want to talk about this morning is, that, is uh, two points, that a biblical man has direction and a biblical man has character. These are the two points we're going to look at. So if you look at verse 1, you'll see that key word, aspires aspires. One of the assumptions that the scripture has is that a man aspires to something. Now, I've served in churches where men don't aspire to the office of elder, which is what the text is talking about right now. Uh, maybe you've had that experience as well. You've seen guys sort of say, man, the, the role of elder, a, a leader in the church, I don't want that kind of responsibility, right? I don't want people to count on me. I don't want people to complain to me. I don't want people to ask me the questions, and they're afraid of that. But the Bible seems to assume that men should aspire or desire or want to live in a role of, of leadership, of servanthood, of being a godly example to the rest of the church. A biblical man is one who has a drive, who has a goal, a purpose, a vision, a direction. This is what God has designed men to have. And yet, on the other hand, we see that possibly the most dangerous thing in the whole world is a man without direction. God has given men instincts, skills, talents, gifts that can be used for good, or they can be used for evil. Our military has a lot of powerful weapons. I think of like a, like a stealth bomber, right? It's a force that can be used for great good, to win battles. But when it goes rogue, when it doesn't have a mission, when it's wandering without purpose, it's a dangerous, destructive thing. I think in many ways, men are the same, right? God gave men a desire for women, right? It's a good thing. God gave, God gave men a desire to, to have a wife. And when it's going in the right direction, it's a good thing, right? When a man desires to be married, to start a family, those are all great things. But when that desire 
becomes unhitched from God's design and from its purpose and its direction, it turns into a man just chasing after sex, a man chasing after hookups and pornography, a man even abusing women in order to get what he wants, a dangerous and destructive thing. Another thing that God has planted deep inside of men is our, our desire to be industrious, right? our desire to, to accomplish things, to, to, to produce things. Uh, this drive for accomplishment is meant to be focused on working a job or building a home or building a family. But when it steers away from that, we start to get into trouble. I remember in my days before, uh, before I had a job, early in high school, uh, I didn't spend my Friday nights working. Instead, I spent my Friday nights uh, teepeeing people's houses. Um, and some of you in the room are like, what is that? I don't know. Toilet paper is so valuable these days that <laughs> nobody would ever think to throw it in people's trees. Uh, but there are a lot of worse things that can happen when a man doesn't have a job or a family in order to drive his energies. Another way that our God-given drive for accomplishment gets warped, I think, is through video games, right? Uh, the world can simulate for you accomplishment. Yeah, I did that thing. I, I beat that thing. I won. But really, you didn't do anything in the real world. I'm sorry, guys, not to, not to be a downer on you here this morning. I'm not saying that they're all bad all the time, but a man can get sucked into simulated accomplishment. Whereas he's supposed to be living out real accomplishment through work or family or home or doing different things with his hands and with his mind. So what do we do about this? How do we help more men find and pursue a direction in life? I want to share with you two answers. Number one is to give them something to do. And number two is to give them a godly example. So we'll talk about the second point during point two. But here, let me talk about the first one. If you want to be a godly man... Here's my advice. Take on some responsibility. Young men in the room, if you want to grow up into a godly man, go find something to do. Take on a burden. Uh, maybe you've heard this saying, as I have, men are like trucks. They drive straighter with a load. Have you ever heard that saying? You think about that? Men drive straighter when there's a burden on the back, when they're carrying responsibility, when other people are counting on them. They drive straighter. They were made to do that. They were made to hold responsibility and to stay the course when they're doing so. Uh, I take my best shot at this with, with my sons. Uh, I got a clip here I want to show you of my two-year-old and uh, just trying my best here, trying to, trying to bring him up in this direction. He's trying. He's, he's getting there. That's my youngest son. That's Micah. He's two years old, and this is his hammer. This is what he calls it. For the last uh, several months, we've been doing a lot of projects around the house. That was tearing off the front porch. And for like three months, he's been carrying this thing around. If he knew that I had it right now, he'd be freaking out. He might be looking for it at home right now. That little boy, I don't have to tell him that he needs to pick up a tool and do something. He has a natural instinct that says, I'm supposed to do something with my hands and with my mind. I'm supposed to accomplish something in this world. And as a dad, I look into his eyes and I see a man that could become a fierce force for good in the world or a man that could become a force for evil in the world. 
Friends, our role is to raise young men who have a vision for the noble task that God has set before them. To work, to build a family, to build a home, to shape society, to share the gospel, to serve their church, to be a godly example to the next generation. This is the vision that God has given for us to share with young men. Genesis 1 and 2 says it a couple of different ways. Here's Genesis 1 verse 28, God's instructions to the very first man. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. God had a vision for the original man. Sin warps that vision, but God has a vision. You and I are called to cling to it. The second point I want to make this morning is that a biblical man has character. Would you look with me at the, the next two verses of the text? It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What the world says is wrong with men is essentially their character. And sometimes they're right. right? We are sinful and broken. We fall short. And yet, some of that criticism is not quite fair. As Christians, you and I are not called to live on the pendulum of what the world thinks a man is. One generation might say a man is somebody who is aggressive and strong and domineering and stoic. The next generation might swing to the other side and say, no, 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 no. a man needs to be more passive and soft. And then the next generation might say, well, that was too much. We're going to go back to the other side. Right, you've seen this, this pendulum in the way that the culture, the way that our world goes back and forth in what they think that human beings should live like. And yet the Bible has a very clear vision of what a man is. The Bible sets forth for us perfect examples, a perfect word about what a man is. And you and I as Christians are called to follow this vision, not to swing back and forth on the pendulum of the world, but to follow God's vision for what a man is. And that true vision is found in God's word and it's described as a man of character. And as I look at the character of a man in scripture, I find that it's often paradoxical. It's often both of the things that the world is talking about at the same time. And they can't imagine how that would be. The Bible describes men as being strong and gentle, kind and firm, confident and humble. The Bible describes men as those who would be tender towards their own, towards their sheep, and yet fierce towards the wolves that would threaten their sheep. The Bible sets forth God's vision for what a man is. As we look at this vision that God has given for men in the home uh, in life, He also talks about how men should be in their home. The passage that we're looking at, as we said, is focused on who should be an elder, and it talks about the elder is the man who takes care of his home because a man shouldn't be in charge of taking care of the church if he can't take care of his own home. And so, this passage that we're going to continue to look at, I'm going to invite you to jump down to verse four. I want to look at these two verses real quick from verse four and five. As we look at men in the home, Paul writes and he says, For he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
So we're going to focus on verse 4 for the moment. And as we look at this, let's just swap he for man and read this again about what God is calling for men to be like in the home. A man must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now listen to me, that phrase right there is so anti-radical current culture, isn't it? I think for a lot of us, when we hear that, we automatically get on, car, on, on guard because our political correctness antenna just goes way off. Like what, this does not seem right. But here's what I'd say. If this passage makes you feel uneasy, it's not because the Bible's bad or wrong. This is a good picture. When understood from a godly perspective, this is right. Yes, there are bad examples out there of what a man should be. Yes, there are. And there is an easy way that seems popular, but it's a path that will lead us to be less than what we should be. But if you read this and you're automatically put on guard, I dare say one of two things is happening. One, you've either been so culturally conditioned that you can't see God's beauty in this, or maybe even worse, you've had a very terrible experience with this. And we're here to let God's vision for this correct our hearts and minds in this. So let's talk about a man at home, what the Bible says. It says a godly man must manage his household well. He must have all dignity and he must keep his children submissive. Let's look at these real briefly. First one, a man must manage his household well. Let me give you what's packed into this little word, manage. In the original language that Paul wrote in Greek, this word manage is the combination of two words. It's, 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 it's this word like to or towards something plus the word to stand. So it's this notion of like we, we take up a post, that we're for something, that we stand up like a man should be. But the connotation is so much more fuller than just like manage or administrate or, or soldier at post. Men and boys, you need to understand there's like, I would point to three specific things that this word is bringing out when we talk about managing our home. And it'd be these. A man must manage his household well, meaning he must protect his family. He must provide for his family, and he presides over his family. These are the markers of a man proving leadership in the home. Number one, he protects his family, meaning he shields them from intruders. And listen, not just intruders who will break in in the middle of the night. Let's be honest, in our, in, in our context around here, very few men would have to actually engage that scenario. But on the side note, men, when we do go to bed at night, we go to bed prepared for that to happen. Well, that might not really happen often, I think what is actually more prevalent when we talk about protecting our family would be this thing. Now, let me preface by saying, let me ask a question to the guys in the house here. Men in the house, would you ever give the keys of your house to an intruder. Okay, there's like five good men in the room apparently. <laughs> Would you ever give your keys to an intruder? No. Of course not. You would never give them that sort of access to your home. But let me just go into territory that's going to make me very unpopular with the teenagers in the house for a moment. We are doing, I would say, nearly a more an almost dangerous equivalent with the cell phone. While keys give us access to our home, phones are access to our children's hearts. 
and we are just giving it to them. We're giving them this incredible responsibility, but a responsibility they have not earned. We're giving them a freedom to the internet without the training of responsibility to engage it. And we are giving our kids phones with unfiltered, unchecked access. And I'm telling you right now, the world is creeping in and seeping into your child's heart and it is warping it. And if you do not think that is happening, you are woefully ignorant of the world around you. It is a dangerous tool like, you have, like the world has never known. And kids are going around with it unchecked. One of the reasons I left youth ministry, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I was a youth pastor during the time before cell phones and then during that tipping point when it happened, and it was like 2010. I'm going to tell you, like 2010, that seemed like that was the tipping point when those things started flooding youth group, and we were just unprepared for it to happen. And if I was unprepared, I know parents are unprepared. When we protect our kids, we protect them not just from evil intruders, but from evil influence. You keep your doors locked at night, but you give evil influence access through the phones. Times, it's time for something to change. We're not protecting our kids when we let the world have that unfiltered access to our kids. We protect them. We also provide for them. Now listen to me. This means we ensuring that they have clothes on their back and they have food on their table. This does not mean that you work 80 to 90 hours a week so that they can have every luxury the Western world has to offer. This means we work our job faithfully hard, provide for our kids, then we go home and we are there to provide for them emotionally and spiritually. We need to scale back on what the world is offering, say no to certain things so dads can be home a little bit more. We provide for our family, we ensure what they have, and that means the godly man's presence is in the home too. And we preside over. With the faithful, godly support and wisdom of our wives, men lead their homes Meaning when push comes to shove, I believe that God, God calls men to have the final say. And let me say this to you. Well, that, I know, puts us all on edge. Let me just say this. Flip, think about it on the flip side. What I'm saying to my, I have two daughters. And I would say this to your daughters and to every woman in this house. Do not marry a man. Do not give your heart to a man who you don't trust to have the final decision. Don't give your heart and your mind and your time to a man who isn't so godly and so wise and so kind that you wouldn't trust him to have the final decision. When we talk about presiding over the house, that's what we mean, that we have authority over us that is holding us accountable. And at the end of the day, the decision, when push comes to shove, I think it lies with the man. Again, that's not to say that a, a man shouldn't be listening to the godly support and wisdom of his wife. He most certainly ha- should. But I would say this at the end, do not marry a man you wouldn't trust with the final decision. We must manage our household well. We must protect, provide, and preside well. We must also have all dignity. Now, we must have all dignity, meaning that we, whether, we're, whether this is public or private, that at all times men are worthy of respect, that our actions are always, and we don't use this word a whole lot, but are honorable, Knowing that God is always with us, always watching, whether the world is or not, that we always act honorably. And this word here that Paul uses for dignity, it it, it talks about, it has this connotation that we take things seriously, that we feel the weight of this, that we feel the gravity of this responsibility that God's placed on men. Let me ask you a question. Who here has ever ridden the Gravitron? Starting to feel sick, aren't you? Just thinking about it. 
Is this thing still around? Is, is the Gravitron still at county fairs, some places? Who's ridden it? Let me see. Who's ridden it? Okay, so you know, you get inside the Gravitron, it spins around, and you're leaning up against these, like, cot bed things, and when the centrifugal force gets so bad, you get lifted up. And let me ask you, for those of you who've been in this thing, do you ever not feel the force of that? You feel it the moment you walk into the moment you step off, and even when I talk about it later, some of you probably 30 years later, you're still getting sick to your stomach over it, because it is such a powerful force. And men, like, what God has called us to is an incredible force, a force that we should feel the weight of, the gravity of all the time. It is such a great weight and a great force that we know that we cannot do this apart from the Spirit in us, apart from the gospel that we believe in and Jesus is our example. When we are called to be dignified in the world, it's something that we are meant to feel the force of all the time because it's a great force. And when men do this in a godly way, it changes society for the better. We are called to be dignified at all times. And lastly, we are to keep our children submissive. I know this is a, this is a quote-unquote trigger word for a lot of us, but let me just talk about what this means real quick. This means that we, in our household, that our children know who's in charge. That's what it means. It means that kids know who they are to be obedient to. Parents aren't obedient to children. Children are obedient, submissive to their parents. And I'm going to tell you right now, for, for the kids who know that they have a good dad who's in control, that is a safer and a healthier home. When children know that they can trust dad and be obedient to him, that's a safer and healthier home. That children are submissive. That doesn't mean that, they've, that, that the dad has squashed their spirit until they have no personality left. It means that the kids know that dad will provide and protect and he presides over their house as a loving and sacrificial leader, just like our Lord and Savior is. And I want to tell you now, in my years before I became lead pastor, when I was working with families, I came to realize the unbelievable power a mom has to either enforce this or undermine this. When a parent undermines or degrades their spouse in front of the kids, I am telling you now, even if, it, even if they feel justified in it, what it does to the children, I'm telling you, it sows seeds for generational dysfunction. Now, I'm not saying ever that a wife should stay with an abusive, unfaithful person. But I'm just saying that parents need to come together so that it is enforced and reinforced when children should submit to their dad in a positive way. I know that my mom and dad had their issues. If you're married, you know that you're married to an imperfect person. I mean, I'm not, but it just... <laughs> you know this, but I know that my mom and dad had issues. But my parents never degraded one another in front of us kids. And we were better for it. We knew who was in charge. Your kids need to know who's in charge. But I dare say that in our day, kids have control. 
Kids have control of the family schedule. And I'm just going to pick on sports for a moment. My kids play sports, but I'm going to say right now, sports dominate a family's schedule in ways that we just are unfamiliar with. Kids spend twice the amount of time in sports today as when I was in high school. Kids have control over the family schedule, and one of those ways is sports. But kids also have control over technology because they are better at it than their parents. Kids know how to use the cell phone in ways that parents don't. They know the apps in ways that parents don't. Kids have control over the family schedule, and kids have control over the technology. The lines of authority at home are dissolving. So families, let me ask you this. Imagine this scenario. You're at home, or grandparents, if you, know, if you have like teenage kids with a phone, ask yourself this. If you're in this scenario, your teenager or your kid's on the phone, and you, let's just say dads, and you say to them, let me see your phone, how does that interaction go? Do they immediately hide it and start swiping away everything they're looking at? Do they turn to you and say, why? Which means now, parents, you have to answer to the kid. Or worse, do they just say no? If they do, Houston, we have a problem. Because you want what's really in control? The phone is. The phone's in control of your child. A man is one who has his children who are submissive. Again, that doesn't mean he's squashed the personality out of them. It means he's demonstrated a sacrificial leadership where he's a good and godly man, where his children trust him, and he calls them to obey him because he's good. A man who's someone who manages his house. He protects, provides, and presides with all dignity. But the question for us is this. How do we do this? How can we do this insurmountable, seemingly task? Is there anyone we can look to? And for Christians, we know the answer to that. We look to Jesus and we look to the gospel for what it means to be a godly man. The perfect example is in the gospel because Jesus is the perfect man. For in the gospel, we see Jesus Christ be the provider, protector, and presider over his family, the church. We see Jesus who was fully dignified. He was completely without sin. At all times, everything Jesus did was honorable, whether someone was looking or someone wasn't. And Jesus shows us what it means to be perfectly submissive to his father, perfectly obedient to his good dad, even unto the point of death. And when Jesus gave himself up on the cross for our sins in our place so that we might have life and have it for the full, he was also showing us what it means to be a godly man. And when Jesus died and returned to heaven, he said that was a good thing to happen because when he got to heaven, he was going to send us the Holy Spirit to fill, fuel, and guide the church, and yes, the men within that church, so that we could do the things that God has called us to do, to be like Christ in this world. And this world has lost its way, and it doesn't know what a man is or what a man should be. And the church has an incredible opportunity right now to show the world what it means to be a good and godly man. And that happens when the Christian men of this world live like Christ in this world. So we're going to take some time, and we're going to pray for the men in this house and for the families that come around him. So Pastor John, would you come and join me as yeah. we prepare our hearts for worship too? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the perfect example we have in Jesus.
Thank you for Jesus who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, who died the death for sin that we should have died, and who was raised to new life so that we can live our lives now and forever in and through you. God, I pray for all the men hearing this word. God, I pray that they would feel not condemnation, but that they would feel a call, a call from you, Father, a call to be a godly man, a call to follow the example and the vision that you have set for us. Lord, I want to say amen to that. Father, I pray that every man here feels inspired in a godly way, being challenged to rise to who you are calling us to be. Lord, there are, there's a world around us that are telling men that they're not good and they're not good enough. And Lord, unfortunately, that message has come from many American pulpits. So Father, I should pray, God, that the men in this house, Lord, they would not feel condemnation. Lord, if, they, if there's a Holy Spirit conviction, then make it so. But Father, I pray that all of us here would see a vision for what a godly man should be so that our families could be strong, our church would be strong, our society would be strong, we have a strong future, Lord, that we'd be more faithful to the call that you've placed on us. And Father, I would pray here and now, Lord, that all of us, as we stand to sing the old rugged cross, we would be mindful that the man who hung on that cross was the perfect man. And we pray this in his name. Amen.